Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're uh, talking on the life of David and talking about different uh, events and characteristics, events in his life and characteristics of David's um, spirit and his personality. We want to continue along those lines. Now, we, um, we weren't uh, together last Wednesday, uh, and so uh, the last time we were together, we looked a little bit at David and uh, what he was going through at the time. There was a, uh, about a seven, seven to eight, maybe nine-year period where David was being persecuted and chased, pursued by Saul. And uh, we see that uh, the David was kind of up and down during some of those early years of, his, uh, of, of Saul's pursuit. He went from being the, the giant slayer to one that was afraid of, uh, uh, of Saul catching up with him. He went from, uh, he turned away from the, from the protection of the Lord and, and trusting in God's deliverance to, uh, to being afraid and trying to do it himself, even to the point where he went down to the city of Goliath and tried to hide himself among the enemies. Well, that didn't work out too well. He had to uh, act crazy and, and um, scare them into letting him go. And then, uh, but he finally got things turned around. He got things back on track. And, uh, and he went back to believing for God's deliverance. And he wound up in the hardest place of ever, the uh, hardest place that he was in, and that was out in the wilderness. You know, it's an amazing thing to me how so many people seem to have the idea that trusting God means that you'll uh, keep getting, uh, the circumstances keep getting better and better and better. The Bible says that the first thing that happened when Jesus was baptized of the Jordan, in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came upon him, that the Holy Ghost led him into the wilderness. Uh, the Holy Ghost doesn't always lead you into, into pleasant places. David, when he got back on track, was led out into the hardest part of the wilderness. And that's where he found God. That's where he found comfort. That's where he got back on track in that he began trusting God again. He began writing psalms. We looked at some of the ones that, uh, that were written in those days when he was being pursued by Saul. And, uh, and as I said, he finally gets back on track. The last thing that happens at the end of chapter 23 is that um, uh, David goes out. He's trusting in the Lord's deliverance. But then Saul comes out against him with a, a giant army. And, uh, and it looks like that, he's gonna, that David's going to be caught. But at the same time that this was taking place, God stirred up the Philistines to attack against uh, to mount an attack against Israel so that Saul had to give up his chase of David and go take care of things that were going on in other parts of the, of the kingdom. And so God delivered David out of the hands of Saul once again. Now we'll start in uh, chapter 24 where um, it says that it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, behold, it was told him saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. These are special forces. Before it was just the army, a whole group of people, but now he's handpicking folks. He's getting the best of the best. He took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. Now, that's a great place to make your home, isn't it? And he came to the sheep coats, by the way. The sheep coats are the, are the little caves. Um, many of them were natural. Others were kind of dug out of the rocks where uh, the, the shepherds would provide a place of protection or the sheep, uh, so they wouldn't be gotten uh, eaten by wild animals and protected from the elements and so forth. So he came to the sheep coach, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. Now, there's some discrepancy. Different translations will translate this different ways. He either went in to go to the bathroom or he went in to take a nap in the heat of the day. I think it was a nap. But regardless, it says that he went into the cave, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy unto thine hand, 
that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good to thee. Now, I want you to notice the first thing that happens. There's two tests that takes place here. And I, what I really want to talk to you about tonight is what I believe is David's greatest victory. We sometimes think of David, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is Goliath and the great uh, victory that was won there. And there's no question that was a, it was an awesome event because David trusted in the hand of the Lord. But God's preparing David during the time that Saul is chasing him. And it's, it's an interesting thing to me that God cares more about your character than he does the results. He'll bring about the results, and he'll see the results take place according to his will, his plan, and his purpose. But so many times people are just interested in trying to get results, and they're not interested in developing the character that will make lasting results. I've always uh, thought about it this way. God prepared Jesus' character for 30 years for three years of ministry. Natural way of thinking is, should be the other way around. Three years of getting Jesus ready should have provided 30 years of ministry because that's the way we want it to be for us. Nobody likes preparation time. But folks, when David is running from Saul, that's preparation time. So he's got his men that are telling him, look, God has delivered Saul into his hands, and he did. No question about it. God put him in there in that position. The question is, why? David's soldiers are sure. They've got the answers. Usually the people without the responsibility do have all the answers. The advisors always know what to do because they're not responsible for the decisions to be made. So they're sure what it is. The answer is, kill him now. Saul is the only thing standing in the way of you being king of Israel. And you've already been anointed and prophesied over to be king. How many times we've heard people say, well, Pastor Mike, such and such was prophesied over me. And then they go about trying to make that prophecy come true. Here's David's chance. Now, as I said, there's two tests. David is enduring a test, but Saul has already endured his. We have to assume that when it says Saul returned from the Philistines that he won the battle. So God helped him. Even though God stirred up the Philistines against him to get him away from David, to preserve and deliver David, Saul had every opportunity to say, you know, God was on my side and he caused these Philistines to be delivered into my hand, even though they're the ones that attacked us. He could have stopped and checked himself and examined his own heart and his own attitude. Even though the anointing has left me, even though the Spirit of God is not on me like it used to be, I still have a place. I still have a work to do. Clearly, God is still using me as king in some minor role. But he didn't. His mind was made up according to what he wanted in the flesh. Now, David has exactly the same test facing him. What does David want? Well, if I was David, I'd want to quit running out and living out there in the wilderness. I'd want to take residence in the palace. I'd want to go where it was easy and comfortable. The food was good. And the girls were pretty and didn't have to look at these sheeps and goats anymore. And these distressed and discontented and all these other guys that came to me in the wilderness. There's a lot of things he could justify by taking Saul's life. But notice it says... After the men had started trying to talk David into it, to taking Saul's life, it says in the end of verse 4, Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. Verse 5, And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now, what is David convicted about? He's convicted because he did something 
that was an affront to the one that God put in place as king. But again, there's all kinds of ways you could justify this. Yeah, but he's not anointed to be king anymore. God set him in place, but God's already anointed another king, already prepared another king. Why not let this new king take place? The sooner the better. I mean, and after all, David's an honorable man and Saul is not. Saul is operating in wickedness. David's going to be a lot better king than Saul ever was. But David's heart smites him. In other words, he's convicted in his heart. His conscience bothers him because he touched the king's robe, which was an affront to the royalty of the position that he held, that Saul held. So his heart smote him. The Bible says two times. There's two times in David's life where the Bible speaks of David's heart smiting him or his conscience bothering him. This is one of the others over in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where it says David numbered the people and God had told him not to. David's got a tender conscience. His heart smites him. His conscience bothers him because he did what he did. Even though he didn't harm him, he had no business touching the king's robe. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words. In other words, everybody else wanted to kill him. But the forcefulness of David's position turned the whole congregation, turned the whole group around. We don't know how many were in the cave, but certainly enough to be considered men, plural. Any one of them could have taken one blow and done him in. Killed Saul, done away with him once and for all. But David's principle, the principles that he operated by, the truth that he knew and what he chose to do in in the face of an opportunity. And you can't look at it any other way than that. This is an opportunity for him to be king quick. But in the face of that opportunity, David's principles held him strong. What were those principles? He had respect for what God put in place. Does he like Saul? Probably not. Is Saul worthy of being king anymore? Well, in David's estimation, if he's anything like me, not so much. But God set him there. God put him in place. And that was enough for David to respect him. And just the slightest work or action against him is touching and cutting off part of his robe causes his conscience to convict him. You know, if the stronger you are in your convictions, you'll turn the crowd if you're strong enough. It's when you don't know. It's when you say, well, you know, there's this and there's that. and Start making excuses and start arguing both sides of the issue. This is one thing the Jews are famous for. You get two, Jew, two Jewish people together and you got four opinions. That's the truth. Because every Jewish person is used to, they're taught this, the, the rabbinicals, rabbinical schools, the rabbis, and the, the, the way that the law of Moses, the Torah and such is taught to them. It's, well, there's this and then there's this to consider. And then you have to consider this and then you have to consider this. There's nothing that's strong. One of the things it says about Jesus is he taught them as having authority. Not like the scribes. In other words, Jesus said, this is the way it is. Because truth never changes. And it doesn't matter if the truth says, if we know what the truth is, it doesn't matter if everybody else says something else. The truth never changes. So the stronger you are grounded in the truth, the more well-grounded you are in the truth, the more you can turn the tide. Most people don't know what they think anyway. When you can give them a reason 
for the position that you take. That reason is based on the word of God. That truth which is based on the word of God. You can turn people's ideas. David did. He stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. Now I want to read to you what David said. And I want to show you the attitude that he expresses here towards Saul. Who is his enemy. Not by David's choice but by Saul's action. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. Notice what he talks to, the way he talks to him. He shows him respect. My Lord, the king. He doesn't come out of the cave saying, I want you to know, I want you to remind you, God anointed me to be king instead of you. You have no business being king. If it had that attitude, Saul would be lying dead in the cave, I'm sure. But he says, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself, showing respect. Again, folks, this has nothing to do with what David thinks about Saul. See, sometimes we look at people that God sets in position and we think we either don't like them or we don't respect them or whatever, so we don't hold respect for the position God's given them. That always works against us. David said to Saul, verse 9, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Notice David does not accuse Saul. Now what is the real problem here? What's the real cause of David's, uh, of Saul pursuing David? Saul. It's not what anybody's telling him. It's what he's decided on his own. But notice the way David pre- presents it. He says, Who are these people that are telling you that I'm trying to hurt you? The implication is that David's saying, I know it's not your fault. You're just being advised poorly. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord has delivered thee today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee. Now notice the, the comparison. Who's telling you that I'm trying to hurt you? And why would you listen to that voice? Now he says, I had voices telling me to kill you. But mine eye spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, folks, everybody here involved in this, well, everybody, meaning David and Saul both, probably the people closest to them, know exactly what's happened. They know that Samuel has anointed David to be the next king. They know Saul has changed. They know the spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul, and this melancholy or depression has come on on Saul, and and he's had to have uh, David or, or somebody. It turned out to be David to play for him, so to soothe him from this. And everybody knows this. This is not stuff done in secret. Everybody knows this. But David still calls Saul the Lord's anointed rather than himself. Now, who is the Lord's anointed? David. But does that mean that God's through with Saul? No. So David recognizes that. And David seems to be the only one in the, in the group that does. Or at least the only one in the group that's willing to act on it. Everybody else has made their justifications and excuses for why it should be differently. Moreover, my father, see, yea, the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression. The word transgression is the word rebellion. In my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. Notice in the first, first part of this verse, he calls him father. 
Saul is his father-in-law. So he draws on the relationship. He says, see, I haven't hurt you. I've got the, the skirt of your robe in my hand. I could have taken your life. Saul's probably thinking he's holding up a piece of cloth. That could be my head he's holding up, just like he did Goliath's. Verse 12. Notice verse 12. You're going to see it again in a minute. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee. But my hand shall not be upon thee, as saith the proverb of the ancients. Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore, here it is again, verse 12 and verse 15 both. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. Now, folks, I want you to compare this, especially that last statement, with what David said before Goliath. Goliath was threatening to kill him talking about what, a, what an insignificant person he is. Before Saul, David says, why am I worth your trouble? Am I that important for you, the king? Of course not. Why are you going to all this trouble? Why are you putting forth all this effort to come after me? The Lord judge between me and you and deliver me out of your hand. Now, why is this a test? This is a test because even back into the, the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says that vengeance belongs to God. If David takes vengeance upon Saul, justifiably, in many ways, at least we could make a case for the justification of it. But if David takes, takes vengeance and exacts violence against Saul, he's broken the word. So this is a matter of him acting on the word or his feelings. Now, folks, here's why this is so important. Here's why this is David's greatest victory. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Now, this is from God's position. This is the Holy Ghost talking. And God says, I'd rather have you controlling your spirit. The word spirit there in many translations says anger. I'd rather have you control of your emotions than for you to do some great work in my name to take a city. Now, make no mistake about it. The applause comes from taking the city. Everybody thinks well of you when you do the work of taking the city or doing something in the name of Jesus or doing something for God or whatever. That's where people say, oh, aren't they great? But there's a lot of people doing the work that aren't in control of their emotions or their spirit. As far as God's concerned, one is definitely better than the other. Controlling your spirit, in other words, character, is better than fruit. That's why, in my opinion, Jesus' character was developed in the way that it was for 30 years, for three years of ministry. I'm not sure that ratio of 10 to 1 holds true in every case, but it ought to. We ought to put 10 times the effort of developing a character the characteristics of God as, as defined and identified by the word as we spend trying to do works, good works for God. But look at how everything is emphasized just the other way in this world. The church talks about vision. The church talks about passion. The church talks about getting out there and doing something for God. We try to stir up the young people by saying, get out there and do something for God. Well, how about stay home and develop your character? 
Now, I understand that's not nearly as exciting. But it's more important. Are you with me? Uh, Where did we get to? Verse 15. Verse 16. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. David won the victory over Saul by using a soft answer. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. David didn't come out blustery, even though he didn't kill Saul. He didn't come out of the cave blustering about who he was and what God's plan for his life was, which is what so many people want to do nowadays. So many people want to tell you what has been prophesied over them and what God's told them they're going to do. Well, let's give part of the glory to Jesus. What are you saying? The way some people talk, it's all about them. It's all about only them. Only they could do the work. It's all about them. It's all about the work that God's got for them to do. Well, what in the world did God do before you came along? Poor old God. Barely made it. It's the way it's presented a lot of times. It's all about the, the PR. It's all about the presentation. A lot of times we show the, the, uh, the shallowness of our character and the way we talk about what we're doing for God. I've, I've told you this. It's been a long time ago, I guess. But there was a, a meeting that uh, was being held at Ramah. I'm not even sure what kind of meeting it was. It was cold part of the year, so I assumed it was a winter Bible seminar. But it was um, uh, a meeting where all kinds of preachers and famous ministers and so forth had come in, and, and the, the, the week was, the services were just phenomenal. And, uh, and as a result, it was, uh, it was in the old building that they had there, and uh, the um, speaker's room was just packed. And everybody was who's who, and everybody was jockeying for position. Brother Hagee had come off the platform and, He'd go sit down, and as he'd always do, and, and uh, he'd drink some water, you know, maybe snack on little fruit or whatever that was back there. And he'd just cool off instead of, you know, putting on his coat and going out into the cold weather. Um, he'd just sit there and kind of rest and get ready to go home. And uh, so for about 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, it was, um, well, I, I want to be charitable about this, but I want to tell you what the, what the reality was. It was, uh, it was 30 or 40 minutes of, Peter's com- of preachers competing for who's us- who God's using the most. And there were some guys that were real, real strong and first forceful personalities, which God uses a lot, Peter types. And, boy, they got to talking. And, and one guy wound up just shouting everybody down almost. And I, I don't mean that literally, but it was close. And one guy wound up just kind of shutting everybody else up and he took the floor and he started telling everybody what was being done and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and after he finished his story, then nobody else wanted to either compete or say anything more. Everybody kind of got tired. So the room kind of dispersed. So it wound up just being me and Brother Hagin left. And, uh, and um, Brother Hagin said this, and, and it, it just it shocked me, still shocks me, to be honest with you. Brother Hagin said this. I was helping him on with his coat, and he said, you know, you get some evangelists, and that's what this guy was. is an evangelist. And no question about it. God was doing some good things with him. Brother Hagin said, you know, you get around some evangelists, and they make you feel like nobody's doing anything for God except them. 
And I'm thinking, wait a minute. We just had a tangible presence of God in the service. I mean, the Spirit of God was in that service so much that nobody was saying a word. Everybody was afraid to move. It was one of those reverent times where the Holy Ghost came in. And Mr. Blowhard Evangelist wouldn't dare have moved to save his life. But then after it was all over, it became one of these things where everybody talked about themselves. And I thought to myself, I, I helped Brother Hagen. I, I didn't respond. I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. So I helped him on with his coat, walked him out to his car, got everything going, and uh, put him in his car, and he drove off. And I thought to myself, if somebody like Brother Hagen that God has used for so long in such tremendous ways can be made to feel like that by somebody talking about themselves, how often does the devil use that same trick to make us think that we're insignificant? David had every opportunity to do this, folks. Every opportunity. Talk about himself and the anointing of God and the plan of God for his life. He didn't do it. He showed respect. One of the things that I've always admired about T.L. Osborne, there was a, a, a situation where um, we were, I was working for Brother Hagen and we were in uh, Houston, Texas. And John Osteen would have his uh, every year for a while. He didn't do it for a whole long time. But uh, for uh, several years, he had a five-fold ministry conference. And it was over Thanksgiving week. And, uh, and he'd have uh, certain people in that were prophets. Uh, well, Brother Hagin was always the one that he'd have in as the prophet. He had some other people in as the apostle. T.L. Osborne was the one that he had that year. He stood in the office of the apostle. He'd have an evangelist. Uh, R.W. Shanbach was there uh, during that week. Uh, he'd have a teacher in. Uh, Charles Capps, I think, was there with us. And, uh, and he would uh, do some speaking as the pastor. So he'd have somebody that was... Uh, um, well-known and currently being used in one of the five-fold ministry offices. And, uh, and my birthday falls right around Thanksgiving. And so we're there, and we're working the book tables and, and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, it, uh, we were there on my birthday. It happened to be the day that was my birthday. And somebody found out about it, and I don't know who it was or how or whatever. But, uh, and so some of the other crew came by, and they were talking about, you know, happy birthday and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, there's probably eight or ten people there. And I looked behind me. Finally, after talking to everybody, I noticed people were looking behind me. And so I finally turned around, and T.L. Osborne was there. And he's just waiting his turn. He didn't stick his hand in and say, hey, I've got to run, but just wanted to say happy birthday. He just waiting his turn, acting like he was just one of the guys. And I've always remembered that. I've always uh, taken notice of that. Brother Osborne would always treat everybody equal. He didn't care who anybody's name was. As far as he was concerned, everybody was created by God and a child of God and therefore had the same value in God's eyes as somebody else. I think that's a good characteristic for us to develop too. In this day and age when people are so celebrity-minded, God's not. Well, don't know why I got over on that. But anyway, let's get back to Saul. Saul said to David again, verse 17, he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord has delivered me into thine hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? In other words, he's saying, this is unheard of. Wherefore, the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. Now notice verse 20. 
And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king. Why? Because he's exhibited the character of a king. That's why this, in my opinion, is David's greatest victory. He's learned to be the king. He was a great fighter before. He was bold. He was a man of faith when he went out against Goliath. But the running from Saul in the wilderness, learning that he couldn't deliver himself, but learning that God could deliver him. By the way, while he's running in the wilderness, he writes Psalm 34. We looked at that a little bit last week. Verse 19 of Psalm 34 says, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, you know the rest of it, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David found that out firsthand. And that's why he goes and says, The Lord judged between me and you, and the Lord delivered me out of your hand. Now he's back over into trusting God again, just like he was when he went out with Goliath, only now he's got experience. He's exhibited the characteristics of the king. Let me ask you a question. We all have dreams. We all have aspirations. We all have visions of things that that, uh, either God wants us to do or that we want to do for him. Do we have the character to sustain the spot that we want? In uh, some years ago, back in the 80s, early 80s, um, Ray McCauley was pastor of the church in South Africa and it was a, it was, there was a, a spectacular work that was being done down there. It was a church that both blacks and whites were a part of, and that was when apartheid was going on and, and all this kind of stuff, just unheard of for blacks and whites to mix. But they did in their church. It, was, uh, it wasn't exactly 50-50, but it was close. And, uh, and so Ray was there, and they were having uh, just a wave of people getting saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and healings and all kinds of things. Ray told the story later. He said he's standing on the platform and he just prayed to himself. He says, oh, God, I want every person in this building to be saved. And the Lord asked him, why? Wouldn't expect that question, huh? At least I wouldn't. And Ray was startled. He said, well, Lord, what do you mean why? Don't you want them saved? And he asked Ray again, why do you want them saved? So you can say you got them saved? Or because you care about them? He said he had to check his heart right there. He said, I realized, man, this could be a make or break moment for the move of God we were having. He had to check his attitude. He said, Lord, I want him to get saved. If nobody ever says my name in association with it whatsoever, I want him saved because you want him saved. They had a greater move of God that day than they had before. And now behold, I know well, verse 20 again, that thou shalt surely be king. And that the kingdom in Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me. And that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men got them up into the hold. Many other translations say the stronghold. In other words they found a fortress and they garrisoned themselves together. Just because David is showing respect to Saul doesn't mean he's going to trust him. He knows Saul's not going to last here. He knows that this kumbaya feeling is not going to hold for long. Now, chapter 20, 25, oh, by the way, this is the point in time that, that uh, um, David writes Psalm 57. It's not real long. Let me read some of it to you. Verse 1, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trust, trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, 
unto God that performeth all things for me. Notice he's waiting for God to work things out. Now, that's easy to say when we're not in the middle of a, of a hard place. But David has, has had years of running from Saul. But he says, I'll wait and let God work it out. And that's a good characteristic to have. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. That's after God delivers him from the cave that we just read about. Now, chapter 25 tells us that Samuel died. I want you to see verse 1. We're just going to kind of summarize verse uh, the 25th chapter because I need to get a little bit further than this. And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him. Notice that. All Israel comes together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. Um, These are people that mourned him when he died but wouldn't listen to him and rejected him when he was alive. Which is really not very uncommon. When it comes to following God, when it comes to serving God, the people that don't care about you when you're alive or don't give ear to the things that you have to say, boy, they'll make you a saint after you're gone. It has nothing to do with you. It's had, it has everything to do with how it makes them look. And that's what happens. So David leaves where he was and comes down to the wilderness of Paran. And it tells about a certain man named Nabal. Nabal was a prosperous man. He was the ha- of the house of Caleb. Remember, Caleb was one of the... the two of the 12 spies Caleb and Joshua were the two of the 12 spies that said in numbers chapter 13 we can take the promised land but the 10 spies convinced the people and and they spent 40 years in the wilderness Caleb at age 80 40 years later at age 80 asked for his inheritance and says to Joshua who is then the leader of the children of Israel in Moses place Caleb says give me this mountain because I'm as strong now at 80 as I was at 40 and so he and his his people his descendants have taken their inheritance and Nabal is one of them. Now the word or the name Nabal means fool. Wouldn't you be glad your dad gave you that name? But he lived up to his name. And so David sends some of the young men. It was, da- it was the time of the shearing and, and that was a big feast time and, and uh, happy time because it was harvest and that type of stuff. And, uh, and David had... had uh, uh, David's men had been around this guy and his shepherds and so forth throughout the year. And so David hears that uh, that this rich guy is uh, shearing sheep. And so he sends some of his young soldiers down there and says, we were the guys that took care of you and protected you against the other enemies and built a wall around you and uh, and so forth. And we didn't harm you. We didn't take anything of yours during the year. Now, David, who shows respect to Nabal, in the, the speech that he gives these guys to say, 
David's just asking if there's anything that you'd like to contribute because of our kindness to you, we'd sure appreciate it. Well, Nabal answers him pretty harshly. Uh, Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Now, can I ask you a question? Who doesn't know who David is? He's the one that killed Goliath. Yeah, but that was a few years ago. He's the one that Saul is chasing because Saul knows he's going to be king. Folks, everybody in Saul's army knows why Saul is chasing David. If it, if it wasn't something that, David, that Saul came right out and told them, they figured it out. Everybody knows who David is. Everybody knows, knows who David's going to be. But Nabal says, well, who is this guy David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. There's a lot of people out there that are looking for a handout. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto them whom I know not whence they came or whence they came or who they are? So David's young men go back to and his young soldiers, uh, the young men that he sends, go back to David. And David hears this and David gets hot. Now remember the same verse of scripture is true that we talked about before. Proverbs 16:32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he that ruleth the spirit is better than he that taketh the city. David has the same test that he had before, but because he doesn't respect Nabal's presence or his position as just an ordinary guy, descendant of Abraham, he takes a different position. David says, oh, God help me if this time tomorrow I don't kill every guy in his house. So he he arms his soldiers. He gets them ready to go. Now, in the meantime, one of the young men young shepherds uh, apparently or somebody in in Nabal's household has heard the speech that these guys from David came and gave before Nabal and heard Nabal's answer. And so they go to Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, and they tell Abigail, our master, you know what an idiot he is. Here's what happened. Here's what David said. And David's men said exactly right. They did us good. They didn't take anything from us. They protected us out there from our enemies and so forth. They had every right to say what they did. They did. But you know Nabal. Nobody can reason with him. We're in trouble. So Abigail prepares an offering, some like 200 sheep or whatever it is, big offering, big present to, to give to David and his men. And she sends out the servants ahead and says, I'm right behind you. You go find David. Now, Abigail does the same thing to David that David just did to Saul in the previous chapter. Let me start reading here and says, um, verse 23, And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the donkey she was riding and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. She's trying to take, take uh, responsibility or take the place for Nabal's stupidity. Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial. She's talking about her husband. Even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. His name is stupid, he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didst send. In other words, she's saying, my sin is I wasn't there when your guys arrived. Don't hold it against him. This is my fault. If I'd been there, this would have turned out differently. Now, therefore, my Lord, as my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord has withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies be as they that seek evil to my Lord, be even as Nabal. 
And then she talks about what she's given and so forth. She appeases David's anger. Now skip with me over to verse 33 or verse 32. We'll start there. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which has sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. Now, isn't that the exact thing that he said that he wouldn't do against Saul? Three times in these three chapters, David's faced with the same exact situation. Two of them with Saul, one of them was with Nabal. What's the difference here? Now, we could, again, you could justify it. You could make a case for David saying, doesn't this guy know that I'm going to be the next king of Israel? How dare he speak to me this way? Well, why didn't he take that position with Saul? Why didn't he say, Saul knows well, very well indeed, that I'm going to be the next king, that the Lord has anointed me, and the Spirit of the Lord's on me and not on him anymore. What, who does he think he is coming out against me? How come David didn't say, who does he think he is to touch the Lord's anointed, meaning me? But he takes this position with Nabal, and he almost sheds blood that he shouldn't have. So anyway, the end of the story is he's appeased. He takes the offering that uh, Abigail sends to him. Abigail goes back and finds that her husband is, is drunk from the feasting and all that kind of stuff, so she didn't say anything to him until morning. In the morning when he sobers up a little bit, she tells him what happened, and he has a stroke. His heart died within him, the King James says. And after 10 days, he died. So Abigail then becomes David's wife. And David takes another wife to himself, some uh, from Jezreel. And then that brings us down to chapter 26. Here's the third test. David's one for two. Here's the third test. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide himself in the hill of somewhere, which is before somewhere else? Now, we've heard of the Ziphites before. The Ziphites were in chapter 23 in verse 19. Let me skip back there and read it to you real quick. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood in the hill of someplace, which is on the south of someplace? Same place, same some places. In other words, these guys have really got it in for David. Every time they catch, uh, get wind of where David is, they want to tell Saul. They want Saul to do away with David. Now, why would the Ziphites want to do away with David? Because he's the guy that killed Goliath. He's the guy that they sing the songs about, that Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. They don't want David anywhere around. They realize David is the threat. Now, let me ask you a question. Why in the world does Saul not come away from defeating the Philistines when God stirred the Philistines up to, give, to deliver David? Why does Saul not come away thinking, I need David with me? Even though we've got this victory over the Philistines, the Spirit of God is with David. We need to keep him with our armies. There's only one answer for that, and that is because his emotions, his jealousy... It's keeping him from doing the right thing. So here are the Ziphites. They tell where David is again. By the way, this is where, when uh, the Ziphites tell them, this is where Psalm 54 is written, where David starts talking about deliverance. It's a real short one. Let me see if I can get over there and take out a couple of verses from that. Psalm 54, 
Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto my enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble. And mine eye has seen his desire upon my enemies. So Saul arose and went down to... This is back in chapter 26, verse 2. Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him. Here's the special forces again. To seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. They come and encamp a certain place. David sends spies out to find out where they are and and comes to the place where he gets... uh, He and another guy decide to go down there in the dark of night. So he and Abishai go into the, the camp of Saul where Saul is asleep in, in what's called the trench. It's a little uh, misleading. The translation is a little misleading. It literally means they fortified things around him. They took the, the goods and the stores and all the stuff that they were carrying and the, they, the, uh, the people, uh, the soldiers pitched their tents around uh, or pitched their bedrolls around where Saul was so that he was in the middle. They kind of made a, a human and a, and a material fort around him. But David got in the middle of it. David snuck through. David and Abishai snuck through and uh, saw that Saul had his stuff there close to him. His spear was there and his cruise of water was there. Notice verse 8. Then said Abishai to David, God has delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him. They know they can't talk David into doing anything about Saul. So now they're saying, I'll do it. Now, this is a perfect opportunity for David to say, well, you know, I can't touch him, but okay, I'll look this way and you take care of him. There's all kinds of ways you could justify this, folks, just like people do. Now, again, there's no question that the Lord has delivered him into into David's hands, but the question is why? This is like somebody finding a bag of money when they're believing God and not turning it in to find the rightful owner. A lot of excuses you can make and justifications you can make. Well, I believe in God, and here God gave me a pile of money. Well, it wasn't your money. I've heard Rhema students give testimony of clerks, store clerks, giving them an extra $20 in change that they shouldn't have and said, see, God met my needs. Well, that $20 came out of the pocket of the clerk that couldn't make her register balance at the end of the shift. You think that's the way God works? Not at all. But God will give you opportunities to see if you're going to be honest. Then said Abishai to David, God has delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear, even to the earth at once. And I will not smite him again the second time. All I need is one shot. I'll run this guy through, pin him to the earth. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Then David said, furthermore, now notice the growth in David. Notice the change, the maturity in David. David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. David knows Saul's days are numbered. Now, that doesn't mean it's it's going to be next week. I've always been amused by the fact that it says in uh, 1 Timothy, David, uh, um, Paul writes to Timothy and says, 
Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander have blasphemed. And I've turned him over to Satan. That they might learn not to blaspheme. And then in chapter in the, the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. He said watch out for Alexander because he's done me much harm. Which tells us that God doesn't kill people as fast as we want him to. I hope you know that's facetious. God doesn't kill people. But Paul is saying, I turned him over to Satan. But by the second letter, Alexander's still around. David's saying, this is God's problem. Either God will smite him down, or he'll live out the length of his days and die naturally, or he'll die in battle. And either which way that goes, it's not up to me. It's God's doing, not mine. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now the spear that is, that, is his bol- that is at his bolster. That means his stuff, his gear. And the cruise of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's stuff. And they got them away and no man saw it nor knew it. Neither awaked for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. God's even helping him to preserve Saul's life. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. It's probably still night. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Abner is uh, the right-hand man. He's the one that took David's place as the cha- captain of the guard. Abner answered and said, Who are thou that criest unto the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a valiant man? Notice he's not talking to Saul. He's not saying, Saul, you messed up again. Haven't we done this before? He's talking to Abner. Because Abner is responsible for the fortifications and the defense that keeps anybody like him that might be a true enemy from coming in and killing Saul. Art thou not a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept the Lord thy king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, thy Lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this not thy voice, my son David? This guy's a snake. Oh, yeah, you're my son, David. You spared my life again, so we're buddies again. And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, my king. And he said, Wherefore does not my Lord this pursue, thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done, or, of what, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my Lord the king hear the words of thy servant. If the Lord has stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. Now, now notice his argument. He said, If God is causing you to chase after me, there's a remedy for that. There's some kind of repentance, there's some kind of sacrifice that I can make to appease God. But if they be the children of men, but if men have stirred you up against me, cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, notice his argument again. He says that anybody that's telling you something that's not true is the same as putting themselves in the place of God. In other words, you hearing from them instead of hearing from God. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about when we disobey the voice of our our spirits, the inward witness, the direction of the Lord, 
we're placing something else as Lord of our life instead of God? We don't think of it in those terms. And many times it's your emotions that become the Lord of your life rather than the the direction of the Holy Spirit. But that's his argument. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. Here he is again. I'm insignificant. I'm not worth your time. That's when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over to fetch it. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. But I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shall still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Now here's the last thing I want to leave you with. And that is this. The first time that David had a chance to kill Saul and chose not to, Saul broke. He cried. He said, yeah, I've done wrong. You're more righteous than me and so forth. The second time David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he had every reason to justify himself by saying, you know, this being nice to Saul hadn't worked. This sparing his life thing is not working. I did it the first time and God knows I was righteous in doing that. But now since it's not working and this is never going to end, I have a perfect right to bring violence to him and end this once and for all. But folks, instead, David stood by his principles. He stood by the the core principles of recognizing and respecting the the, uh, position that God put Saul in. And as a result, Saul ends his pursuit of David from this point. In other words, just like Galatians 6 says, be not weary in well-doing, for you shall reap in due time. It took David two times, two of the same tests to stand by his principles, to not touch Saul and not take his life. But it paid off because from this point forward, Saul stops his pursuit of David. David doesn't become king right away. He still spends some time in the wilderness, but he's able to spend the remaining years until he's king fighting the enemies of Israel instead of running from Saul. What tests are coming your way? Folks, don't think the devil just worked this way toward David because he was a king. The Bible says that we're all kings and priests unto God. And you need to realize there are going to be tests, and not all of them are are the devil. There are going to be opportunities that God will present you with to see if you're going to put the word first, to see if you're going to operate by the principles and the characteristics, the spiritual characteristics that Jesus told us to develop as following his example. We need to be people that do the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because it serves us. Not because somebody's watching. But because it's the right thing. Amen. This is what I believe to be David's greatest victory. From this point forward, he begins to make his name great by defeating the enemies of Israel. Because he passed the test to let God do his own work. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have the same spirit. 
that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit enables us to develop the characteristics, what's called the fruit of the spirit in the New Testament, the book of Galatians. The same fruit of the spirit, the same spiritual characteristics that Jesus operated by in his life in an even greater way than David did. Lord, we thank you for David's example because it speaks to us and speaks to the importance for us to develop not just our faith, to see bodies healed and see our finances, financial needs met, but Lord, to develop our faith in trusting you to bring about your plan and your purpose in your time. Thank you, Lord, that the word is true. Thank you that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.